Hi, everyone, and welcome back to RPG R&D. I am one of your hosts, Jess Geyer. I'm one half of Wannabe Games, and I make role-playing games, and I'm here with my co-host, Craig Campbell. Hello, Craig. Hi, Jess. Um, yeah, I'm Craig Campbell. I'm the owner of Nerdburger Games, and I make tabletop role-playing games as well. And we are here with returning guest, Derek. Hello, Derek. Welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Tell us about yourself, Derek. My name is Derek A. Kamal, and I run Shoreless Skies Publishing. So I, I publish fiction novels and tabletop games as well. And uh, yeah. Well, thank you for coming on the show again. It's good to see you. Thank you. I love being on the show. You guys are always fun to talk to. Uh, Craig, I have an apology because we're recording on a Saturday and we usually release episodes on Thursdays. <laughs> and I, um, even though that this is a routine that I've had for a good year or two, uh, I, I didn't send it to you. In fact, I completely just did not even think about how we had an episode and that is a problem with my brain <laughs> um i was incredibly busy at work and didn't even think about it until you sent it to me <laughs> i woke up to it on saturday morning it had, the episode for the record has been posted um by the time you're listening to this you've probably already listened to that episode okay so it was a couple days late not the end of the world but uh, yeah. no problem, Jess. No, yeah, I wanted to bring it up because I think it's relevant to. Oh sure, our, well, it's why... certainly relevant to our topic. <laughs> well, let's let's let's, <laughs> let's let's swing this back around to you then. Set us up. Why is it relevant? Well, today we're going to talk about GMing for neurodiversity, and I am neurodivergent myself. Um, I have ADHD. I am also a teacher. I I, you know, I teach a lot of people uh, various types of neurodivergence, and um, I think that. It's good to be understanding of people whose brains function differently um, and who process situations differently. And it's really important, especially in this, in tabletop games, because a lot of people who are neurodivergent find a community in tabletop games. So, uh, Derek, I'm happy that you selected this episode for today. What's your experience with neurodivergence in games? Oh, man. So... I have, I had suspect, I'll go give myself a little bit of an autobiography and then I'll, I'll dovetail it into games. So I suspected I had ADHD for most of my life. Um, I never suspected I had anxiety, but guess what? Turns out. Oh yeah. Comorbidities. Um, they are a thing. Me too. <laughs> Me too. Comorbidity. Like when I was talking to my therapist and I first heard that word, I was like, can we cuss on the show? I can't remember. We, I mean, not to we can't that was the most fucking metal word i've ever heard comorbidity i'm gonna start a band uh <laughs> and then that led to a rabbit hole of just like learning about what that means so i suspected of having it like a long for most of most of my life i'd come around to it and i'd be like i really there's a problem here and i'd read about it and i'm like eh, and i you know i would you know i would move on to the next thing which is a kind of as a symptom of inattention sometimes um and then finally a few years ago what it became we also suspected my older child had it too and a few years ago their symptoms like just hit the terminal or critical mass we're like we got to get this checked out thanks covid and um so after we got her checked out and diagnosed with adhd and emotional dysregulation um 
I started researching it and I read up on all the symptoms of ADHD and inattention and all, and all that stuff. And it's very interesting, but the more I read, I was like, shoot, I gotta, get, <laughs> I gotta get this sorted out. Um, because you know, periodically it would affect my work. It would affect my life, my marriage, like where I would just, I would just blank on things or I would, um, you know, just not be able to settle down. And so I got diagnosed a couple of years ago. Um, and so since that time, it's like, you, you can't not see it when you're in the middle of it. And I've been noticing it all, all throughout my life, but especially in my hobby time and my tabletop gaming time. Um, and it's also allowed me to reflect back on GMing and just playing games in general with, with friends. So a, a good buddy of mine, we had a campaign we did for years. Uh, he was on the autistic spectrum. And so I, you know, I would go back and think like, he was very open about it. And so he'd be like, oh yeah, my, my Asperger's is acting up. And so, you know, I would be aware of that when it would bring it to the table. Uh, my wife has anxiety and depression. And so I have had to, um, you know, just learn how to deal with that at the table and outside the table, because it definitely affects scheduling and, and group dynamics and things like that. Um, and I am also a teacher. And so it's also opened my eyes to a lot of my students needs. Um, Cause Again, you can't not see it once you start thinking about it and it becomes sort of, you know, once you're diagnosed, it almost becomes a part of your identity. And so it's just there in front of me. And so I'll just, it's like my radar is on and I see these kids and I'm like, oh my gosh, you need to talk to somebody about this because you very clearly uh, have something going on in your brain um, if nobody's told you about it before. Um, so that's kind of my, the overview of my experience with mental health and neurodiversity and, and gaming in general. Yeah, I, I it's, it's really, you mentioned scheduling issues. Um, I think it's important to kind of say a little bit um, like depression and anxiety and, and autism and ADHD and schizophrenia. And like, I mean, there's so many different things that can come into this label, but one of the things that it affects the most is people's interactions in their social their home and their work life and because the social life is that third ring um and a lot of people's in this industry like if you're into if you're into tabletop games your social life probably really revolves around tabletop games you are going to see your hobby affected and impacted by that so one of the major things that i've seen in my life with that is scheduling issues people um for example, if you are going through a depressive episode, you might completely lose interest in the hobby entirely, yep. and you might not want to. Um, you might not want to show up to a game. You might ghost your your other your players if you're a GM, or you know the other players if you're another player. And if people don't know or understand that this is not like you're not being a jerk, there's a you're you're going through. A, a problem that you it's kind of out of your control in a lot of ways yeah um that can really i don't know it can have like a lot of really damaging long-term impacts on someone's social life and that can of course worsen symptoms especially if the if if it's coming out of anxiety or depression um but i think being understanding and aware as a gm especially like who the people are at your table and what else 
what else could make this like what what why aren't they showing up why are they dropping out at the last minute why are they completely detached when they're here and acting like they're not having a good time instead of just jumping to a conclusion like uh they're a jerk i'm not going to talk to them again having a conversation i'm a horrible gm they hate me and they never want to show up again having a conversation and really understanding your players i think is really important of course not everyone's going to share with you their um or even know necessarily their their status as someone who's neurodivergent um but you might be able to like there's so many yeah go ahead there's so many facets to it because mental or neurodiversity and like the symptoms of inattention or autism or anxiety depression whatever they're all just human emotions everybody experiences inattention or awkwardness or sadness or nervousness but when there's a disorder it's those normal human emotions like to the extreme or like your brain chemistry is in such a state that it's not just normal sadness. It's not just normal inattention or whatever. Um, and so people may not sorry, say that again. I said, it's chronic. It's not it's acute chronic, anymore. Yeah. It's chronic. Right. And so some people may not even be aware of that. They think, well, I'm just feeling sad today, or I'm just, you know, I just can't settle down today or whatever. I just can't focus today. Um, so they may not even be aware, like you said. Um, and then I think the other side of that, when I was thinking about talking to you guys about this, a lot of good GMing and just being a good person to play games with comes down to kind of basic social skills in a way and sensitivity and kindness. And so um, there might be people tempted to like, or maybe even feel intimidated uh, by this topic because they think, well, I'm not like a doctor. I can't like, you know, research every single thing that my friends might have or that I might come across at the game table. But like, I'm glad you're saying that one need only be aware because you don't need to have a doctorate or you don't need to be a certified, you know, therapist or whatever to um, meet the needs of people who are neurodivergent at your table, like just being sensitive and aware of what they're doing and talking to them and, and not taking it personally. So to kind of go back to teaching um, before I was more aware of, some of the mental health issues that students could have, like, and I see this in a lot of my colleagues as well. If a kid is just not paying attention or blurting out or whatever, like you can take that very personally. Like this mm -hmm. kid's disrupting my class. They, they have no respect, blah, 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 blah. Um, but when you start to, to notice symptoms and you actually pay attention to some of the um, material that has already been documented on a student, like you realize that that's just the symptom of whatever their, their issue is. Um, and so it's not personal, it's just they're not able to control it. And so I, I'm glad you brought that up because it was very tempting in any situation, but especially when you're playing a game with someone to take it personally, especially as a GM, because you know, I feel like we've talked about this before. GMing is so personal because you 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 want that approval, you want to put on, you know, quote unquote a good show, you want everyone to have a good time. And if somebody is not, you could see that as a reflection of your own um person you know your own personhood your own skills as a, as a dungeon master or whatever um whereas the person who's causing you this distress like it's it is beyond their control or they're just having a bad day or they forgot to take their meds or, or whatever it is mm -hmm. so just having some awareness of that just goes so far in, in mitigating those um symptoms and they probably feel bad about it too like i yeah i suffer from like constant shame in my life of things that I've forgotten things that I've left behind people I don't talk to anymore and it's been so long and now I feel like I can't talk to them anymore like there's a lot of shame mm -hmm. attached to it 
especially if you don't understand yourself um and and like adding on to that shame can just make me personally adding on to that shame someone like says oh you're a bad person because blah 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 like that will send me into a spiral and that's the worst thing that can happen but yeah just being understanding being kind and compassionate sorry there's a really loud we live in an age where the, the, the conversation is um around mental health is sort of ramping up because mm-hmm. like we've learned so the psychiatric community has learned so much in the last like 50 years i mean even the last 20 years um about various mental health issues and how they present and just the whole the whole spe- science of like the spectrum of, of autism or like even adhd is a spectrum and everything is um so even though we don't it's weird because we don't know that much like there's no like cure uh that one size fits all treatment for whatever disorder we're talking about but we've learned so much and people have become more vocal about it especially online it's not like um it's more socially acceptable to say oh i'm feeling this kind of way or you know even to bring up the conversation uh there's there's less of a stigma around it's still awkward it's still hard but it can it's um People, we're more open to it now when we're educated about it now. So like, hopefully it can be talked about to um, take some of the, the shame out of it. Cause I know exactly what you mean with that shame. Cause yeah. you know, you, you make one mistake or you forget something and like your whole world comes crumbling down. But if you can be open at the table and talk about these things uh, it takes some of that sting out of it just to know that the people you're playing with in your group are, they, they understand, they want to understand and they, and they care about you. And that makes such a big difference. So what are some GMing strategies we can use, whether we are as the GM neurodivergent or whether our players or both are neurodivergent, what are some specific strategies we might be able to use to help support neurodivergency and uh, neurodivergence at the table? Yeah, that's a tough one. I think the number one thing, this is kind of what I meant before when I was saying how it, it can be intimidating if as a GM, if you want to be sensitive and helpful you can feel like, you know, you just have to know everything and you have to become, you know, become a sort of uh, autodidact uh, Mm -hmm. therapist or something. And so I don't think anyone should have that expectation, but approaching your table and the people in your group with uh, the kind of sensitivity and understanding that we've been talking about, I think that's the easiest and the number one thing uh, to go with. Because, you know, if you're, uh, GMing for someone who is autistic or ADHD or whatever, it's really no, it's, it is different, but it's not a different approach than anybody's per, other type of person or personality. Like, you know, the people at your table and you know what they want out of the game and you know how to interact with them. So simply being aware and noticing um, how the people in your group behave and what they like and what they don't like, that's kind of step number one. So rather than necessarily taking something personally or um, getting frustrated with someone because they're not doing X, Y, or Z, uh, simply being open to them as they are at the table um, is going to go a really long way in terms of uh, making a great experience for someone who's uh, neurodivergent or whatever the case may be. And having those Um, supports just available for 
everyone too. Like that's something we do in teaching yep. where if, if there is a support like notes, providing notes for the class, that's a support that's really helpful for a lot of people who are neurodivergent, but it's also helpful for everyone. And there's a chance that you will, you will go through a period of time in your life where you are going to need the support, even if it's not forever, maybe for a period of time. Um, and, and allowing anyone access to it is really important. And speaking of notes, I think note taking is super important for me. Like I will forget as soon as we're, as soon as I'm done saying a thing, I, there's a chance I'll forget what I said or what I'm doing at the table, who that person's name was, the NPC, uh, where they were going, what my plans were in the future. So I like to make sure that I have those notes written down for me that I can look at before I go and I keep them attached to like whatever I'm using, like what actual tools, some sort of physical reminder that I have notes in the first place. Uh, Cause I will sometimes also forget that I have a note um, or just not even think about it. Um, so I'll put the notes in my book that I'm using or I'll have them up um, like linked into the digital space that I'm using just so I know to click on them, read through them, and then give myself a reminder. Because once I get a reminder, I, it's not like it's gone from my memory necessarily. It's it's there. I just need a reminder. Um, and having it's those notes accessible. Background. Oh, yeah, yeah. And having those notes accessible to the other players is also helpful because they might also not remember. They might also forget what their characters were doing. And encouraging them to to do notes in the same way or even add to like a general note document. Um, I found that to be a really good support. It's not as necessary yeah, that, when you were doing a one shot, but yeah, but that's huge for again. I feel like we've talked about this before, but handing that off to another player in your group who either just likes to take notes because that's how they learn, or they're trying to practice good habits. Like I can, yeah. I can speak most about ADHD because that's kind of my own deal. But like, I saw a meme. It the the gist of which was like when you get out of your routine for a day with ADHD, it's like, it's just gone. <laughs> and so yes. there might be, you know, there might be a player who uh, either just likes taking notes or is trying to build good habits um, and making that their job uh, can be very helpful to you as a GM because you have less to keep up with, but then it's encouraging them to build that habit of note-taking. And then I, I really like what you said about a physical thing. That's something I, I struggle with because with ADHD, it's, it's literally sometimes out of sight, out of mind. And so I prefer to do things on the computer just because it's tidier and it's less overwhelming to have stuff everywhere. But when I don't have that physical object, it's easier to forget to take notes or to forget I have the notes, as you were saying. Um, and that physicality is something that's really helpful for um, people of all, you know, all sorts of uh, flavors of neurodivergence is, you know, having a physical fidget or um, playing with your dice or whatever it might be, it kind of keeps you in the moment. And so that's, that's kind of a, a tip to someone who, you know, is trying to stay engaged at the table. And also for a GM, like if someone is knitting in your game or like, you know, they're fussing with something or they're drawing, they're that could be just their power. way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Building pyramids with their dice. Uh, that could be just their way of staying engaged. Uh, because if you have that, that tactility, that can actually help you to your mind to, to focus on what's going on. So again, it just comes back around to sensitivity and being aware and talking to your players um, and making space for them. Case in point, my friend who uh, has had ASD, who we would play one ring with, um, 
I just had to make space for him because one of his things by, by his personality, cause he was kind of a, you know, dramatic guy, but then also because of, um, his autism, he loved to just kind of soliloquize. Is that a word? So give a soliloquy. Sure. He loved, he was very dramatic at the table. Whereas a lot of my players would be like, I hit them with the sword. He, you know, or my character, my character hits them with the sword. He would, you know, be very um, emotive and go on. And, and he, he loved the role playing part of the game. And so being aware of his own needs, like I just made space for him. Like, you know, there were, there were times where, I had to be like, all right, we're going to, let's put that on hold. We're going to advance the story a little bit, but then coming back around to what he wanted to say and, you know, the actions he wanted to take and um, being accepting of his way of playing was, was just an easy and human <laughs> humanizing way of uh, including him at the table. Um, a lot of what, what the two of you are saying is um, hearkening to the idea that as we've said, there's, you know, many flavors of neurodivergence. And so I find myself um, thinking that, you know, a, a good approach maybe as the GM is to, you know, as we've always said on the, on the show, talk to the player, but see what, you know, might ideas for what might work for that player, find out what it is that works for them in their regular life. There might, they might have a few different things that they do and then try different things at the table. And it might take a little experimentation to figure out kind of what works best for that particular player in this particular game playing type of experience, like what they can equate it to. Like, you know, this, this game plays a lot like this other thing in my life. Like the engagement here is similar to the engagement when I do this other thing. So maybe that's the right tool the the tool that i use there is the tool that i can use here and you can try it and you can be like you know and have that conversation with them afterwards and say did did, did does this seem to be helping are we good do we just more of that is that what we want or is it you know maybe do we need to try something else because you're not necessarily going to hit on the um especially if it's a person that's you know newly dealing with um recognition of their neurodivergence um um or who has you know recently found um, new methods of, of, of working with it. Um, there might, you know, it, it, if you play, if you switch between different game types and you know, like if it's a mathy dice rolling game, somebody might need a different kind of a way to engage than if it's a super improv storytelling game. Yeah. And I, one thing I, I've really got, I've gotten into miniature gaming hobbies and Warhammer in the last six months. And one thing I've been thinking about is that games and hobbies are a very fun, safe place to experiment, like you're saying, with different habits and techniques of that you can build to help yourself. Like the the phrase, I the sad phrase I learned early on in my sort of mental health journey was pills don't teach skills. So like I, I finally got some meds sorted out like a, six months ago, and I was like, this is awesome. But then you realize it's that's just simply not how it works. It's not you know. Uh, it's not like an antihistamine where all of a sudden your sniffles go away. Like you still have those symptoms. Um, the pills, at least in my case, just helped me to make better choices. And so I still had to build those habits. Building, practicing habits and experimenting with different skills is way more fun in <laughs> gaming than it is <laughs> in sort of the mundanity of real life. And so I like what you're saying in that, you know, you can kind of co-pilot with your players if they're in a stat situation where they want maybe they want to practice note taking or some other sort of skill that's that can sort of scaffold you know 
their gaming for them so that it's easier for them to to deal with whatever they're dealing with um because like i said it's you know for example um one thing that is uh, a symptom of adhd is this constant hunt for novelty mm-hmm. and newness and fresh stuff like just that you want that dopamine hit and so um that's one thing i've really enjoyed about uh wargaming is like every every little soldier is just so cool and got so many details and i can paint them in all these different colors and so there's just you know this huge um uh spectrum of things i can do and so implementing that in whatever game you're doing but especially in tabletop gaming or with uh with uh, role-playing games you know that might be something that's easy to introduce to a player or you as a gm with adhd uh, you can you can bring in that sense of novelty with little like physical things like new dice. Um, you can treat yourself to a new D6 if you just need something cool. If you just want that dopamine hit. Um, being okay with someone who's constantly making new characters because that that again that sense of novelty can come from you know you just have this idea for a character and you have to do it. So letting them build that character just for fun or introducing that character as an NPC or like letting their main character. Um, is you know asleep or on a side quest for this session and so they can play this new character that they're very excited about um anything like that is to introduce novelty is going to be super helpful for a player with uh, adhd i that's part of the reason why i think i'm so attracted to like a like a campaign where something new is happening on every single session yes yeah. i'll have that like my biggest my longest running habit and i don't have a lot of them but it was going every Saturday. I would drive a whole ass hour to go to <laughs> go game every Saturday for like several hours at a time. I was the most focused, attentive, like little little goblin there. Cause every day <laughs> there was something new for me to think about for the rest of the entire yeah. week. And I was like so, so hyped about it. And like having that. Uh, also help me get because gamification of habits is is really is a really fun important tool but also having something that will provide fun and social interaction is important for people who uh, have anxiety or depression or other um, other similar um, disorders because that might be one of the one of the ways where you can kind of dig yourself out of a spiral because you have people there who who care about you and you have something fun to look forward to all of the time. So having that game also helped me um, through some some harder periods in my life as well. Um, the game is yeah. almost like a, a a medium. It's like a conduit. It's like a maybe you can think of a better word, but it's like a screen or almost between you and the other person. Mm-hmm. Like I don't have to sit there and make small talk with you and feel awkward and hate myself for an hour yeah. or whatever, because we're playing this game together there. I read a BBC story about this. Um, I don't remember where they had it, maybe like a community center in uh, Northern Ireland where it was a Warhammer club specifically for uh, people with autism. And so it, the game became this medium by which they could interact with another human and practice those social skills. Because like I said, you're not just, going out for a beer and like having to think of something to say and all you want to talk about is some weird niche thing that you've been obsessed with for the last week you might put yes. the other person off you're doing this thing together or you know and like you're saying with anxiety like i don't need to feel the the pressure of needing to carry the conversation or what if they say this what if i do that what if i'm awkward and they reject me 
you can circumvent that whole wall of awful. Um, is that what they call it? Um, <laughs> I think it was, yeah, it was like an ADHD researcher who turned that coined that phrase wall of awful. But when, when I say it, it sounds like O-F-F-A-O, like wall of, waffle. anyway. <laughs> waffle, squirrel. Um, so you circumvent that through the yes, game. So you were right. I had to Google so, it. Yeah. Well, yeah, thank you. Wall of awful. So whether it's a board game or a war game or an RPG, um, I'm not, I don't, I can have that interaction and feel that connection with another human without, um, or, you know, with something that can help me to get over all that nastiness in my brain. Um, so I, that's why I think, I think that's why we see so many people from various margins being drawn to gaming. Um, like I feel like every trans or queer friend I have, I've met through gaming. Um, I, lots of my neurodivergent friends, again, through gaming, um, because there's just this sense of, I mean, there's a sense of acceptance within the community that's really hard to find elsewhere in most places. God save you if you're on Twitter. Um, <laughs> but it's also like, again, I can't think of the best way to explain it. There's that space, that it's safety net of the buffer. That's the word. Thank you, Jess. The you're buffer <laughs> of the game between you and the other person. Like, you know, we don't have to make awkward conversation. I don't have to, you know, worry about what's going to happen. I don't worry about have to worry about what I can't control. I don't have to worry about if I'm going to go on some kind of tangent or like make them uncomfortable because we have this thing we're doing together. And there are established, sorry, there are established rules in place too that you can, you don't have to guess at the, what, what you're supposed to do. There are established rules in place to follow. It's, it strikes me, it strikes me, Derek, that you made the comment about like, I, I, I don't have to risk, you know, rambling on about this thing I'm obsessed with and putting the person off when, well, you're playing a game that if you're both sitting there playing Warhammer and you've both spent 150 hours painting your minis, you're both already obsessed with that. (laughs) So you have permission to be obsessive with that other person that you're playing the game with because you're both really into it. Yeah. Before we started recording, you were talking about the Ren Faire and like those spaces, cons, Ren Faire, things like that. Like I remember uh, the first time I went to Gen Con, this really nice guy was with his, his young son and it was a panel actually with our, our, our mutual friend, Eloy LaSanta. And uh, the dad wanted to encourage his son. And so he, he asked the designers a question like, oh, my, my son got made fun of at school because he plays D&D. And unfortunately, I can't remember their name, but it was another game designer who said like, remember kid, like there's not a convention for being a jerk, but there's a convention for playing games. And so you're now part of this huge community and we can all be, get together and geek out and, you know, if you, if I, you, you know, whatever, take your pick. If you ye- start yelling a quote from Lord of the Rings at a convention, like people are going to know exactly what you're talking about, and you they're going to respond. <laughs> yeah, they're, yeah. they're going to respond so, with the line pe- that you respond with. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're going to know it. And so people who hyper focus on things or deep dive into, you know, that, that's that's a, a symptom of ADHD and, and certain forms of autism as well, where you get hyper focused on a particular thing. Like if I go to work and I'm going to geek out about, you know, the current, you know, the, the, the family tree of Bilbo Baggins, there might be one lit teacher there who knows what the heck I'm talking about. And there might be some more people who will politely listen. But if I'm in a space at a game shop or a gathering of friends at my home or a convention, like they're all <laughs> there for that. And so that yeah. comes back around to what I was saying about like, this, it's a safe space because so many people with neurodivergence are drawn to this kind of stuff. They can, you know, we can feel safe in that place. And so at your table, that's a, that's, you have a huge advantage because you're starting from that point 
where you all have this mutual interest and you can just kind of build off of that with your players. I, I think like that's one of the things I really still struggle with is people I feel like find me really weird in my regular everyday to day life, like at work. I know that there are some teachers that think like just she's a little she's a little weird. <laughs> She'll say some things that seemingly are disconnected from our conversation. She'll do some awkward things. And I really like I'm really sensitive to that. But I've never felt that way in a gaming situation or at a convention because I I don't know. It's 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 great. I think I think we all flourish there. Every everyone yeah. can flourish. It's part of the an I keep saying symptom. I don't know if that's the right word. A symptom of ADHD is just that excitement uh, when you get that dopamine rush and everyone kind of already feels that at a convention. Like even, you know, people who um, are quote unquote normal, like they're already pumped up just to be there. And so if you're feeling that exuberance and that excitement, like it's not going to put anybody off. But I think too, I've, I feel like I'm kind of um, coming around to that stage and look where I worry about being too much in a particular situation because for most of my life because i am a creature of great shame and uh did not know what was going on with me like i just learned to mask all that adhd stuff i would shut myself down and you know make myself very small and so i would make myself acceptable socially but now because i'm older and i have fewer fucks to give and because i know what's going on with me like i feel comfortable just being weird and blurting stuff out and all that um and so you know, not, not to you necessarily to you specifically, Jess, but to anyone listening, like if you're in a position at a game shop or if you're a teacher like us or whatever, where you can um, learn to be comfortable and embrace yourself, like that's going to make a lot of space and set an example for other people who may be struggling with that. Cause like, I have no, like, again, as part of this whole thing I've been going through the last few years, I've got just nerd stuff all over my classroom like Lord of the Rings stuff, like gaming stuff, all kinds of stuff. And if that encourages like one nerdy kid I teach to be more comfortable with themselves or one neurodivergent kid to be okay with like yelling and being weird, um, like that's what it's all about. Um, so, it, you know, I it took me 40 years to get to where I am, but I, I think that that's um, another thing that anyone can do in their game group at the table uh, where they can be welcoming and accepting of where people are, uh, you know, and encourage them to be themselves as well. Yeah. So what about for game design? Um, I think we've like, I love that conversation. We could talk about that literally probably for a whole day. Um, and I'm, I'm so glad that you ended by the way, the way that you did encouraging children to just be themselves is my calling as a teacher. How can we, as game designers, implement things within our game design that specifically support neurodivergent people who might play your game, neurodivergent GMs who might pick up your game? Um, I I want to start with a tweet. Actually, like I never like get into discourse on this channel, but this tweet came across <laughs> my feed, and I found that it was really interesting, and I like to bring it here because it has to do with our topic. So this is from Clockwork Jim on Twitter. Speaking of Twitter being, you know, what it is, but it says, my TTRPG hot take, the lack of a robust rule set to stim simulate intellectual and social interaction is low-key ableist. 
If you can simulate combat and non-existent magic, you should be able to simulate social interaction and intelligence. And I'm curious about what you think about that. So I understand they're saying, they're saying that the lack of mechanics for social interactions is partly a result of ableism that like people take for granted the fact that they can, they have those social skills. They, there's not a focus of that in game design. I'm not sure yeah, I understand the, the follow the, the follow-up tweet is some of us have a have personality disorders some of us freeze when faced with a new social situa situation you know who doesn't have those traits the characters we're playing um so mm. this person oh is yeah. yeah is struggling with the idea that we have all these rules for combat these things that we don't actually do as as people but we just kind of loosey-goosey yeah. it for yeah I, I think the, the fallback with if a game if, if the fallback in a game is like well when you're dealing with social stuff just role play it is assuming that every player can't is is comfortable just role playing it and getting right and, and you know and getting into essentially social confrontation not just i mean if if it's characters that are just kind of talking to each other and like i'm speaking to you and my character and we're, our characters are friends and we're all having a great time that's one that's that's one type of interaction but then there's also like social conflict where you might be talking to the gm and you have to like confront like get in this npc's mm -hmm. face in some way and you may not be equipped or or comfortable to do that sure. sort of thing and not having a mechanic of some sort in place that the player can fall back on and say well i i threaten the npc with this and roll or series of rolls or spend points or whatever the mechanic is rather than like you know assuming that they're going to have this banter back and forth that you have to convince the gm that you've threatened them sufficiently yeah that's something i've struggled with at my table because i have two people in my group who love to role play and we have these like epic dialogues where we're just going at it in character and then the rest of the group is more they just can't really get into that they and so um i feel like there have been crumbs of social uh excuse me social combat quote unquote over the years like pathfinder specifically had uh, some rules for that, though they weren't very fleshed out because they're still based on the D&D 3.5 system, which is basically just wargaming with some roleplay attached. Um, like Fate has some of that, PBTA has some of that. Um, so I wonder, you guys can tell me what you think. I wonder if it's simply a matter of accepting um, the systems as they are, even if they're imperfect. There's probably some out there that have some really great... Uh, action resolution for for social situations one ring has a pretty good one um but i wonder if it's just a matter of accepting it for what it is because you know in combat if i'm like i jump through the air and i stab the goblin with my sword like that's acceptable and so if you just say i i'm like you said craig i threaten them with this piece of information role like i think it's just a matter of doing that and um i don't know what do you guys think no we i specifically wrote something into that into means of magic we said you can, if you want to like speak in person, you're doing, you're narrating exactly what you're doing. You're having these like conversations. You are allowed to do that, but you are also equally allowed to say, I, I want to bring up to them that they said, said this a long time ago, they made this promise and now they have to keep it. And I'm just kind of summarizing what I said. And the GM, like we, we all, we're all going to play pretend that is what happened. And it happened the way that you wanted it to happen the the yeah. the rolling system is is different for it 
um and there are some negotiation like rules within the game but you are explicitly allowed via the rules instead of just role play you can do it this way you can do it this way they are both fine and everyone can decide how they're going to do it at the table that's huge not just for neurodivergent people but also anybody because so there's such a divide at least in my experience between people who love role-playing and character and people who are absolutely terrified to do that regardless of you know uh the shape of their brain so to speak uh so i think that's that's huge and uh, i mentioned one ring they gamified or mechanicified whatever you want to say uh the social interactions in so far as i think i don't know if they ripped off fate or not but it was such that you said i do this either in character or just as a statement and then you rolled uh and you scored a point and basically you had points in your favor and points uh, in your favor to influence the NPC and then points against you to turn the NPC against you. And, you know, you had X number of roles based on it and um, whatever the end result was when you were through all those rounds, like determined what happened next. So really any kind of system like that becomes what we were talking about before. It buffers that social interaction because maybe I really like putting on a a bad accent and arguing with the GM, or maybe that is not why I'm there at all. And so simply having that option um, can take the intimidation out of those kind of moments. Because again, it always cracks me up just the way people behave at the table. Because a good friend of mine who's been playing games with us for years, she's like very social and they are a therapist by trade. And so they talk to people all day and they love that kind of rich discussion. But at the table... All they want to do is kill goblins. And so making space for that either mechanically or with your own kind of house rule as your group, like is probably not that hard to do, but I wonder what's going to come in the future as people become more aware of, um, you know, people become aware of ableism and more marginalized neurodivergent creators continue to make games. I'd be curious to see how that kind of develops over time. Yeah, because um, in the past there have been some um, some games that are like straight up ableist too. Like, I maybe d- definitely think twice about adding um, a like you can choose this flaw and your flaw is depression. Like, think about right. doing that in your game and what that says about people. Uh, before you straight up do it however i do think that there are ways that you can include um like the negative impacts of like having i'm adhd is not all roses depression certainly is not all roses anxiety is not all roses for me um there are definitely some negative aspects to it and if the game were about that and about navigating in a world where you are functionally different than other people like yeah you can include a lot of that but if it's not thematic in your game and like why 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 are you including that there as a as just a negative thing i don't know i i'm rambling on that like but be considerate no it's important as you are designing I i think in the design realm it's because it's easy to decide okay here's here's you know benefit you know uh uh Boons and banes, benefits and flaws, you know, whatever it is. Like when you get to the flaws side of it, is the first thing that you can do is just like pick all the things that you think would, you know, negatively affect. And it's it's easy. It's easy to say, well, if somebody is hard of hearing or deaf or something, that's you know, like, okay, we'll make our list of flaws. That'll just be all that stuff, rather than saying your flaws are, you know, you're haunted 
<laughs> by the spirit of someone yeah. who is angry with you or like you know you have um a bloodlust over something that you can't deal with or the idea that you can never state it's like this this supernatural force that's impelling you to do some things and um it's yeah that was one of those things and and especially in games that have a lot of those options it's like well, we got to fill the pages yeah um but what what are you really doing like come up with interesting flaws um and then let the let the uh the things that would be tied to neurodivergence or ableism, whatever you can like, I went so far as in good, strong hands to say, you can play any type of character you want. You can do this and this and this, and there's a you know wide spectrum of different types of characters you can play. If you want any of those qualities to affect your character game mechanic wise, you can choose to do that oh, or you can not. So you can literally the... in good, strong hands. You can play a character in a wheelchair who is deaf in one ear um, blind in one eye has you know what just pick pick all this stuff and they, there's no penalties if you don't want there to be anything but yeah. if you want to play a character That's... and on the, on the flip side of that i have to throw in you know people who aren't um dealing with those problems don't use it as tourism don't use it as an excuse to Ooh, play yeah. a deaf mm -hmm. player in an, in some sort of stereotypical ridiculous way um Right. <laughs> That's just good. because and I just because that... you can say, well, I'll make my character deaf and they'll will be a constant problem and they'll have negatives to this yeah. and that and everything else, and it'll hamstring the yeah. character and it'll piss off the players in the group and blah de blah de blah. That, that that's no good either. Um <laughs> so sometimes you have to be a little bit explicit and say, like, yeah, you know, do this, don't yeah. do that. Um <laughs> I will use the way that you are different to be a troll. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, that's, that that's where the yeah, it really does. Um, but I like what you're saying because that's where the fiction becomes a becomes the buffer. If you think if you talk to someone who's experiencing depression or whatever, it's hard to explain. It's uh, it, it's it, we fall into the realm of figurative language and uh, visual cues and things like that because it's hard to you know even if you said something like uh, my brain's not producing enough. Uh, serotonin or something like what the what the heck does that even mean and so if you are feeling depressed or anxious it could feel like the ghost of you know necrogoblicon the wary is haunting you and so i have a hard time with this experiential approach to game design where you are trying to put the players into someone else's shoes. Like, I feel like I'm not there yet as a designer. I have ideas, but I, I don't really know how to do that. Um, and so if you're designing a game and you want to make space, you just have to be very kind and explicit about it. Like, kind of like you were saying, Craig, like just in the text itself, you have to say X, Y, or Z. Um, and accept it as a learning experience. Like, a, honestly, a lot of the stuff I've learned about gender has happened through gaming and game design, because I remember those of you who are of a certain age might remember um, Google Plus, and there was a really thriving indie RPG dev community on Google Plus before it shut down, rest in peace. And I remember posing, posting a question where I was like, I'm writing the rules for this game. Like, I'm using the he pronoun. Like, what, is that okay? And all the responses were like, no, let me tell you about the, um singular they let me tell you about the they them pronouns and how and um even something as simple as that can go a long way in terms of being inclusive to someone uh for someone so 
saying you can do this that or the other with your character you can play them as you know in a wheelchair or whatever uh but you don't have to giving them that freedom to me that's the the key and it's the same at the table like the um being sensitive and allowing a certain amount of openness is going to make people feel a lot more comfortable at your table um i feel like the experiential thing where you're trying to simulate and immerse a player in a particular character that's experiencing something is like almost a different genre um and i'm not good at that <laughs> i don't know how to do that it's also especially hard because unless you're like super specific and like label what you're doing in a game it is kind of hard to represent neurodivergence in a game it's not like i can show i can really demonstrate that i'm trying to support people of all of all um like of all bodies for example by having images and art in my game right. that shows people with disabilities for example like visual like disabilities that you can see but the ones that are invisible like if you look at a person you cannot just decide like oh yes they they clearly are are suffering from anxiety disorder like yeah. <laughs> you can't look at me put those lines that. around their head man yeah yeah you can't do that Jeez. visually you have to do it verbally and it's like really weird to be able to like put that in there in a way it's, it, it's even harder to do than uh, expressing like queerness in a game because i can use all sorts of pronouns i i right i can do that all day every day but it's so much harder to to show the people that are reading your game like hey we are supportive of this this and this unless you literally specifically say it for neurodivergence and other hidden disabilities too yeah sometimes it just has to be in the text mm -hmm. Um, or you have to count on the idea that if you if you present the images when the image is conducive to being able to do something like that, if you if you've got a modern day game, somebody can be wearing a pride pin. Um, that's something that it's, that's that's a thing that people do, um, or have you know a rainbow shirt or or something that gets the point across in a visual way and then you can you can pepper it into the images when you can you can put it into the text when it's when you can when it, when you can make it flow and reasonable and not you know because it's it is sometimes very difficult to find the right wording um and the way to present it but if you put it if you put some of that in there the people who absorb the game and see the images and read you know large parts of the thing will will get that you're making the attempt to get all of that yeah. in there you may not be able to represent everything you may not be able to there's like you said there's invisible um uh, uh neurodivergences that out, outside of just straight up saying the character is diagnosed with something like it's it, it may not right. be very easy to describe it as man how it manifests unless you've got a like a very large npc dis uh, section where you can talk about different aspects of their life and how different things happen um but you can do what you can and just kind of get the point across where where you where you can and you can do that through the fiction but i feel like even with that you would need to have some kind of sidebar that's like we're representing mental health through this spell or this you know this thing in the fiction so like i said i find it very difficult to design with those experiences in mind so i tend to focus and i've been trying to focus lately on the more hands-on um mechanical practical elements of game design and reaching you know being being more accessible for people with adhd or whatever um and specifically that happens in a few different ways 
with book layout and design, having tons of text features and breaking up the text and being as economical with your wording as possible is huge, not just for people experiencing an attention, but really anybody, because like I'm going through, I recently read through um, the One Ring Second Edition, and now I'm reading through the Age of Sigmar book. And it's like beautiful, gorgeous hardbacks with amazing illustrations, really good writing, but it's walls of text. And I can get through that on a good day, but sometimes I'm like, it's physically intimidating for me to get through an eight and a half by 11 double page wall of text. So even if you break up the text with an illustration or uh, subheadings and you chunk it in that way, that's going to make your book, whether it's a rule book or a full core book, whatever the heck you're talking about, make it more accessible to really lots of people. Cause not, I mean, I don't know the statistics, but a lot of people don't like to read. And so but not even just someone uh, with inattention or whatever, but just people who don't read that much will have an easier time understanding your book if you do that. And then also mechanically, something I've been trying to be aware of is kind of that same, bringing that same mentality to the tabletop. So right now, the, the thing I've been working on most, besides an audio book I've been trying to do, is... Um, a follow another broken cast game surprise surprise and with this one you are it's more of a self-contained board it's a solo game and you're moving your characters around the pub like com completing different actions and my goal with that is to make the rules as readable as possible but then also to make the mechanics and the board state as simple as possible not boring but simple in that there's not a lot to hold in your brain with a traditional RPG, you have the whole group to work with. You have your rules lawyer. You've got a lot of people to bounce around uh, ideas with and carry the game. In a solo game um, or even like a two-player board game or something, like the onus is more on you. And so the more I can simplify the board state with fewer rules to remember, fewer um, uh, less visual clutter with the game components, um, fewer stats to remember and skills and things like that to me it's more friendly to people of all all sorts of uh neurodiversity and so that's kind of what i've been trying to learn more about like breaking things into smaller pieces um telegraphing what's going to happen because that's something a lot of people with anxiety or certain parts of the autism spectrum deal with is that uncertainty can be very triggering even in a game setting um, so telegraphing more of what's going to happen, offering them more choices. Uh, those are some of the things I've been thinking about and doing more like mental health friendly game design. Like definitely the visual breakdown of a text is a barrier for me when I open up a text and I'm a strong reader. Like, yeah, I'm, I'm a teacher. I taught English, you know, like right. I'm a good reader <laughs> and it's hard for me to like open up a book and it's just like text. I'm like, Ugh, I don't know where to start. Um, definitely breaking it up yeah i thought this was supposed types. to be fun this yeah. is like toy soldiers and dragons exactly. why does this look like a doctoral thesis yeah having like graphical summaries too at the end like here are some important facts oh my gosh yes chapter, or even at the beginning of a chapter reminders like hey this is linked here um good making sure that your font you have like plenty of white space around your font you're not really crowding things there are some games that do like really visual stuff with their are, like I'm not saying every game needs to be 100% like the text needs to be 100% accessible like look at Mort Corp for example but you do have to consider that God. when you have literally like 10% of 
people have dyslexia, just dyslexia, think about the accessibility of your game when it comes to that. Um, and yeah, gosh, they're like Mortcorp. I, you know, it's very, very visually pretty, but it's really hard for me to focus on the text even. Um, I, yeah. I did manage. And it says, it's a little tiny book. I think it gets away with it because it's a little tiny book. <laughs> and it's really cool. Yeah, it's really um, cool. <laughs> I mean, I've I've tried to do, I, I got into a discussion with this at a, a few different times and there was there were some things that I just started doing because I I personally liked how they look and I thought that they just helped me to read the page or to, to view the page better um is you know use of headers don't be afraid like you know have a header and then you got oh now I've got a page and a half of just columns um that's that's a lot like bullet points um bolding of important words like I've I've I some people will accuse me of over bolding in my in my books um but i i do that on a, for a very specific reason because like there's certain important game terms that like whenever it comes up i want to make sure that you can find this is where we're talking about this kind of a trait checker this is where we're talking about you know this particular aspect of the mechanics of the game or something and so they like i bold these things to put it like that when i did um secrets of the vibrant isle and and the sequel to that um i went in specifically to Part of it was to be able to have it be very playable in PDF form, but I did it also to make it as, you know, easy to comprehend everything. The whole rule section up front, the first, you know, whatever it is, 12 or so pages, everything is a two-page spread. These two pages tell you everything you need to know about this topic. These two pages tell you everything you need to know about that topic. And so, and it's a six by nine book, so it's not terribly, you know, in, in depth to read. It's, it's over, like I said, it's over, it's overwritten with, uh, with, you know, over, uh, overfilled with bullet points and bolds and all sorts of stuff to kind of, to, to, to help you kind of just pick out the important spots, make sure, like you said, Jess, not everybody reads everything, but if you see like, oh, I get to this page and it's like, it's, I see the same word bolded six times. Like there's probably something important about that word or about that game mechanic yeah. that's in there and it can help you find it. It can help you retain it um, and learn it. Um, and there's no, there's no perfect way to do any of this. It's just, you know, no. like we said, you know, it's really not broad, and, and, broad, and spe broad every... spectrum of possible readers and, and, and the way they absorb information and what their neurodivergences might be. It's just trying to find as many, put as many tools in there as you can to kind of help as many people as you can. Yeah. Cause every diagnosis is, is on a spectrum. Mm -hmm. So like the, you know, the, the, the autistic spectrum is huge and it can be from like some minute symptom to like, you know, something more severe, same thing with ADHD, anxiety, depression, that they're all along a spectrum. So you're never going to hit, you're never going to create a book that reaches every single person because we're all individuals. We all, regardless of a diagnosis or what was going on in our lives, like we all learn differently. We all have different preferences. So you're never going to make the perfect book. Uh, but the more stuff you can throw in the better, like for me personally, um, page references are huge because mm -hmm. again, I'm thinking of age of Sigmar because that's what I'm reading right now, but it's, there's references to a character so-and-so. And I'm like, who the fuck is that? I have to know. <laughs> like, I can't, I start, I get hyper-focused on it. And I wish that they had a glossary or just a page reference. So I can flip to page 300 and be like, oh, he's, this is that elf, you know, necromancer or whatever. Um, Cause that's, that's partly my personality is partly an ADHD thing where I just, I, I can't let things go all the time. And so to ease my brain in that space, like being able to flip back and, and find a picture of this person or whatever and resolve that in my brain will let me, let me kind of go on. 
readability for um, character sheets and cheat sheets, I think are really big for, for all of us because it's it makes it easier to read for all of us, uh, not just the big brains who love to crunch numbers, but especially people um, with ADHD having very cleanly designed cheat sheet that summarizes the rules with as many icons and symbols as possible is very important. Um, I, again, I think in general, but sp thinking specifically of, of uh, people with ADHD or, I mean, even anxiety, because anxiety and depression can affect your ability to focus. So yes. uh, it, you doing those things makes it more accessible in general. So like more symbols, more, um, not colors, but using, even if it's grayscale, using gray and white in alternating ways to distinguish different areas of the character sheet or the play materials, whatever they are. Um, check boxes. I think that's why I'm in love with PBTA so much is like having, being able to mark up my character sheet and physically see what's going on rather than having to either track it or use a separate piece of paper for it is super helpful. Having it all in one place is really helpful. Um, yeah, there's so many little things you can do that make them, that make your work and your game more accessible on mass, but especially to anybody, uh, any neurodivergent person. And, and that's, that's like the important thing I think to take away is that the more accessible you are to people um, who are neurodivergent, the more accessible you are to everyone, because the supports that you're adding yep. to your game are going to help everyone. Not, not just because like someday they're going to have, they're going to have some, they're going to be really tired. That's going to be hard for them to concentrate or they're, they're going to be sad or they are going, they have, they Maybe they had COVID and now they have long COVID and that is a reality for a lot of people. And now they can't look, it's hard for them to concentrate. Like some, somewhere down the line, that's going to help them, but it's also going to help people who are neurotypical. They are going to be, it will help them as well. And it's just a way that you can, it's a way that you're knocking down barriers. And the more barrier barriers we knock down, the more of an equitable, gaming space we can have the more justice we can have in our gaming space absolutely and, and i never really connected this before but being teachers i think we're, we're kind of at the forefront of that because the education world has been finding ways to be more inclusive of all you know brain types whatever i know that's not the right way to say it uh for like a very long time now and like i just had the thought of when i create something that's specifically for a kid who doesn't speak english or who i know is uh who has a, an iep or whatever if I make a material for them that looks differently, all the other kids are like, can I have that? Why can't I have that? Can I get um, a paper copy? Because it's not. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Not because, uh, because it's like you were saying, making something more accessible with someone spe a specific issue in mind makes it more accessible for, for everybody. And if you were making a game that is doing anything in a very atypical way, um, be extra cognizant because you're adding a load of just this part of the game that's very different from other games that people may not are you know that people are familiar with and use as like this institutional knowledge of how rpgs work um when i yep. designed capers i recognized very early when i was writing things that i'm i'm asking people to learn this playing card system that is unlike almost everything else that's ever been that they've ever played mm -hmm. and so when i wrote character creation it is literally numbered steps like a note at the top that says you can do these in any order but here's an order and then boom, 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 takes you through the whole thing. And then there's a character sheet with colored coded areas saying, this is where you put this information. This is where you put that information. This is where you put that information. And like, you know, 
making the character creation process as easy as possible with and, and doing that before I introduced the system in its complexity, I gave them the basics of how the system is going to function. So they had a reference point of reference for making selections in their character creation and then save the rules for later, because I figured it would probably be easier for somebody to kind of get their head wrapped around the game by creating a character. Not that again, everybody reads a book front to back. Like some people will go to the rules first. So the rules have to be able to stand on their own and present that information. But you know, like I recognize that there's something really out of the ordinary here. So I had to kind of think about like, how much do I want to burden the reader? Um, and so I had to kind of think, and it, it made, there may be more and better things I could have done, but I at least, you know, I spent some time with it. So maybe someday there'll be a second edition where I, I do an even better job of, <laughs> of presenting all that information. In, well, in knowledge is a very tricky thing. And I didn't realize that until my the first fantasy novel I published like six years ago bless him my dad tried to read it and he's like I'm reading your book am I supposed to know what the hell is going on because <laughs> I <laughs> I wrote the book from the perspective of like someone who has read Lord of the Rings and understands like the basic tropes of fantasy uh so creating something whatever it is if it's a rule book or a story creating it so that it's more accessible and doesn't require that in knowledge is very helpful to to everyone Derek, thanks for coming on and talking about this with us. My pleasure. Um, we got to wrap up because we have another episode we got to get to in about 20. Um, but uh, <laughs> wait, what do you want to plug? I want to plug uh, myself. <laughs> so uh, I'm sure this guy's pretty much everywhere. Uh, right now, like I said, I'm working on another Broken Cast game, which should be hopefully finished by the end of the year. But more importantly... I'm taking a risk. I am going to be releasing my next novel as a podcast audiobook in June next month. So uh, if you follow me, Shoreless Guys, shorelessguys.com or Shoreless Guys on all the socials, you can find out more about that. It is in the same, it's called the Green Crow Inn. It's in the same cozy tavern setting as apparently all of my stuff is now because I'm the tavern <laughs> guy now. Um, but I'm excited uh, for people to check it out. Uh, and I'm excited to see what the response is because I've never done an audiobook before. I got lucky and I hired a really talented young voice actor who was affordable. Um, and hopefully that will encourage people to read the book and they'll just enjoy it. So so keep an eye out on shorelessguys.com. You can sign up for my mailing list and the Green Crow Inn should hopefully be out in the next month or two. Awesome. Broken Cask is on my shelf for my next solo game I'm playing. I'm getting through Apothecaria. I was like, I saw <laughs> that. I, was like, I need Yay. it. I've got a few friends that have been plowing through solo games lately yeah it's like a it's big so hit. fun yeah <laughs> uh you can find me at wannabegames.com or on drive through rpg or itch under the same name wannabe games um i am also a stretch goal mission writer for the never going home kickstarter so Ooh. i mean i guess no one has to support it anymore because i i got mine funded no i'm just joking but you can go see that it's, it's, it's <laughs> never it going down. home <laughs> it's never going home by wedding games um and if you are an indie game designer, if you do board games, card games, LARPs, tabletop role-playing games, and you have released a game in the last year that you want to you wanna get recognized for an award, the Indie, indie Groundbreaker Awards are now accepting nominations. So you can go find the nomination form for yourself at igdnonline.com. Go do that before the end of the month. 
Yeah. <laughs> uh, and you can find me online at Nerdburger Craig on Twitter and at DiceCamp on Mastodon. Uh, my website is nerdburgergames.com. The games are all up on DriveThruRPG. The uh, Kickstarter for What is Light Without Dark, a supplement for Good Strong Hands, is ongoing for yet a couple more weeks, so you can check that out. Um, and uh, first teaser... Um, episode 100 is coming soon. We are going to do something a little different um, for that episode. I'm not going to tell you what it is now, but in a couple episodes from now, we'll probably start talking about that a little bit more. So stay tuned. Thank you to our opening and closing theme song, which is Avel by Steph Sachs, licensed under Creative Commons. Thank you, Steph Sachs, and thank all of you for listening. We'll see you back here next time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.